Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 13, Voyage of the Columbia, Part 4. It is good to be back. I know that it has been a little bit. When last we met, John Kendrick and Robert Gray had decided to swap ships and part ways. Kendrick would remain in Nootka Sound with the smaller Lady Washington to trade for more sea otter pelts, and Gray would take the larger Columbia to China to sell the furs that he had purchased. Additionally, Kendrick had left his son with Jose Esteban Martinez. John Kendrick Jr. had requested to be transferred to Martinez's ship so that he could pursue a career in the Spanish Navy. I'd like to address this as it may seem strange to some listening today. Hundreds of years ago, it was not unheard of for someone of a particular nationality to sign on in a foreign navy. Not unlike the subject of our past episode on Vitus Bering, who was a Danish explorer sailing for Russia. With that aside, we will continue to follow Gray as we only have an account of what he did at the time. Don't worry though, we are not yet done with Captain Kendrick. The new captain of the Columbia, Robert Gray, would first sail to the Hawaiian Islands before crossing the Pacific to China. Gray sailed to Keala Kakua Bay, which you may remember was the same bay where Captain Cook was killed. It had been a little over 10 years since that day when the Columbia came sailing into the bay. After spending so long up north around Vancouver Island, the crew of the Columbia welcomed the tropical climate. Gray met with the local Hawaiians, who had changed significantly since Captain Cook's initial meeting with them. Traffic to the island of Hawaii had steadily increased as it made a natural stopping point for ships crossing the Pacific Ocean. As a result, the Hawaiians had acquired metal tools and guns through trade. They were not a people to be trifled with in the first place, but were now well armed. Upon his arrival, Gray was given a letter by one of the Hawaiians. It was from William Douglas, captain of the Iphigenia. The Hawaiians did not know how to read the contents of the letter, but in it, Captain Gray found a warning essentially saying that the Hawaiians were not to be trusted and that any who arrived should leave at the soonest possible time. Gray copied the essence of the letter and left one for Captain Kendrick in case he happened through here as well. Captain Gray took the warning to heart, ensuring that someone was constantly on guard duty day and night, but nothing ever happened. He found that interactions with the Hawaiian people were peaceful and easygoing. The Columbia brought on 150 live hogs from Hawaii, and the crew were happy to have some more fresh meat on board. Many of the crew wrote in detail about the women of Hawaii. For men used to conservatively dressed women up in Boston, the barely clothed women of the tropical islands were astonishing to them. Many of these accounts wind up reading like the journal of a teenage boy. Before departing, Gray welcomed two additions to his crew, two Hawaiians named Atu and Kalehua, otherwise referred to as Opi. Atu was described as chiefly, meaning he was probably a son of the chief. He became Gray's cabin boy, and Opi came on as the first mate's assistant the assistant to the assistant captain, as it were. It was common for indigenous people to join European expeditions who they came in contact with, sometimes willingly, but usually not. In this case, I am unsure the reasons for Atu and Opie coming along, but they would venture further from home than any other Hawaiian before. Gray also left commemorative medals at Keala Kakua Bay. 
He left these medals almost everywhere he visited. These medals had a twofold effect. One, they were proof that Robert Gray indeed went where he said he did. And two, they were a point of pride for the young United States as it attempted to project itself into the world. From Hawaii, Gray sailed to Macau, China. He was amazed at the bustling harbor before him. The harbor of Boston in 1790 couldn't compare to the trade hub around Macau. There was so much traffic that any foreign ship entering had to take on a Chinese pilot to navigate the waterway. Despite being a major trade hub, China was almost entirely closed off to foreigners. In Macau, foreigners were relegated to factories. These were trading posts designed for the transfer of goods. These factories, which flew flags from the different nations who ran them, were organized along a single street. If you were not Chinese, you could not wander more than a couple of streets away from the factories, and that was only during the daytime. Chinese authorities mandated a strict curfew on foreigners. Being caught away from the factories, or out when you weren't supposed to, was grounds for immediate expulsion from China. Foreign women were also forbidden from entering China entirely. The Chinese leadership had several reasons for all of these strict rules. At this time, Chinese culture was centered around self-identity and inward focus. They had tremendous worries that foreign culture and ideas would corrupt Chinese culture and their way of life. Foreign women were not allowed in China because it was believed that this would quickly lead to the establishment of colonies. To explain, the fear was that a foreign woman would marry a Chinese man and then her family would begin to migrate to China as well. And then soon there would be more foreigners and intermarrying. Gray arrived in China and there was a letter waiting for him from his benefactor, Joseph Burrell. This was the first Gray had heard from Burrell since the expedition left Boston. The letter was intended for Captain Kendrick, but who knew when or if he would arrive. To Gray's slight relief, Burrell's tone was overall pessimistic. It sounded as if he did not believe much or any profit would be made. Burrell stated in his letter that if no profit could be made, that one or both of the ships could be sold in Macau. He also instructed them not to waste too much time in China and that they should only sail to Canton if they are certain better prices could be obtained. Gray took the chance to draft an equally pessimistic letter in return. He said that profit was unlikely with the amount and quality of skins and considering that the Columbia was in need of repairs. Additionally, he noted that the leader of the expedition, Captain Kendrick, was still at Nootka Sound. Gray did in fact assess his situation accurately. Between all the docking fees, ship repairs, resupply, and pricing at Macau, he only walked away with a quarter of what Burrell had invested in this whole expedition. However, it is quite possible that Captain Gray skimmed a little off the top. There is some highly plausible evidence that some undeclared sea otter pelts were sold in Macau as well. These furs, by all rights, would have belonged to Burrell and the voyage's benefactors. In any case, Gray could not buy extravagant silks and porcelain and decided to purchase a load of tea instead. Before leaving, Gray had received a letter from Kendrick asking about his whereabouts and the prices of the furs. Gray, in essence, responded that prices were dismal and neglected to entertain any idea of rendezvousing with his commander. Captain Gray took the Columbia and headed west toward Boston as soon as he possibly could, 
leaving Kendrick and the Lady Washington for good. After sailing around the Cape of Good Hope and across the Atlantic, Robert Gray passed Castle Island at the edge of Boston Harbor. He had carried the Stars and Stripes around the world and was the first American to do so. One can imagine Captain Gray standing on the deck of the Columbia on August 9th of 1790. His home was finally in front of him once more. Despite the lack of profit on this expedition, he had still done it, gone around the entire earth, braved storms, treated with indigenous people, and had done it all without the help of his commander. The serious and business-like Gray may have even smiled as he stood near Nancy the Goat, the voyage's mascot, watching Boston unfold on the horizon. Gray arrived to a hero's welcome. Citizens gathered at the harbor to watch the Columbia sail in. It was a point of pride for an American, not to mention a Bostonian, to have circumnavigated the globe. The Columbia offered a cannon salute and the people cheered. Gray marched at the head of a procession to the Capitol building. Along with him was his first mate, Joseph Ingraham, and the other officers, likely including Robert Haswell. Attu and Opie were also there. Attu was dressed in full regal splendor. He wore a feathered cape and helmet. He would have been the most brightly dressed person in the whole parade, and probably in the whole city. If you are curious, Attu's feathered helmet, or Mahiole, is on display at the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University. It is not as bright as it was in 1790, but it is still a fascinating piece. I've put a link to the museum in the show notes if you are interested. Attu's cape has been lost from deterioration, unfortunately. Gray's march ended at the Massachusetts State Capitol building, where he was entertained by Governor John Hancock. John Hancock, whose prominent signature on the Declaration of Independence made his name analogous to signing anything, greeted the world explorers heartily. Hancock was suffering from gout and could not walk, but was pushed around in a wheelchair to speak with the men of the expedition. John Hancock was delighted to hear about their adventures in the Pacific, run-ins with foreign nations, Nootka Sound, Hawaii, and the Far East, it would have been a thrilling evening to hear all of this discussed. Gray's glad-handing with the governor would not last forever, and he would next have to face Joseph Burrell, who had lost a tremendous amount of his investment on this expedition. With the new U.S. Constitution came new federal import duties and taxes. After paying taxes on the tea which Gray had returned with, the entire venture returned a mere $304. Almost all of Burrell's $49,000 investment had been lost. Gray had two advantages, though. His name was a buzz all over Boston and probably even the entire state. He was famous for his endeavor, and let us not forget that Gray was not the man in charge of the voyage. Gray and his other officers sat in Burrell's office, recounting the failures and incompetencies of Captain Kendrick. They were quick to pin everything on their leader. Burrell was inclined to listen to them, as there was no one else to provide any other narrative. Despite the failures of the first voyage, Burrell was ready to fund a second expedition with Robert Gray as the commander. Burrell understood that Gray now had valuable insight and knowledge pertaining to the sea otter trade. Burrell told Gray that he would personally finance this voyage himself if he had to. He obviously had faith that Robert Gray was the man for the job. A month after Gray's return to Boston, 
the Columbia was caulked and repaired. Many of the trinkets that had been brought for trade were still on the ship. The Native Americans of the Pacific Northwest had no interest in any of these things. This time, the ship would be loaded with copper, more iron chisels, and even guns. Any reservations about trading guns were out the window now. Burrell still wanted two ships on the expedition, but Kendrick and the Lady Washington had still not arrived in Boston. Taking a page from John Mears' book, Gray thought they could build a sloop at Nootka Sound. They would be loaded up with the material necessary to frame the ship and cut down lumber at the Sound. A few personnel changes had been made to the expedition as well. For starters, the young Robert Haswell had been promoted to first mate on this voyage. Secondly, Joseph Burrell sent a clerk to accompany Gray on the voyage by the name of John Hoskins. Hoskins' role was blatantly obvious. He was there to ensure that no sales went unreported and that every penny the expedition made was accounted for. Burrell was making it clear that he may have had faith in Gray's leadership, but obviously did not trust the man. In his instructions to Gray, he told him that John Hoskins should be treated with the utmost respect as an extension of his own authority. The thought of having Burrell's agent constantly hovering over his shoulder bothered Gray to no end. That was something to fret over later, though. On October 1st, 1790, the Columbia sailed from Boston once more. Gray stood on the deck of his ship, Nancy the Goat by his side. This time, Gray was not on some small sloop, but captain of a vessel worthy of being a flagship. This time, he was the man in charge, and things would be done his way. Robert Gray's first voyage would make him a famous American, and his second voyage would change the course of Pacific Northwest history. Before I go, I want to thank those of you who have been rating the podcast. It is truly appreciated. Another thank you to those of you who have been recommending the podcast to friends and family. It all makes a significant difference. As a reminder, if you want to do more to support the show, there is a donation program active on our website. Just go to historypnwpodcast.podbean.com. That is historypnwpodcast.podbean.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page and click or tap the blue donate button. You can also find a link in the show notes where you will also find contact information. If you have any questions or comments, you are welcome to email me. Again, I thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. It means so much to me. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a happy holiday season. Take care.